Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. In this season, we're going to explore how we can become better as a species at facing challenges and solving problems, especially during unpredictable situations. We're going to do that by exploring the machinery of our body and the biomechanics of resilience, adaptability, and social intelligence. We'll look at our power to control and modify how we use our hands, voices, bodies, breath, and the intelligent systems of our cells, bones, and muscles to unlock our potential as a cooperative and brilliant species. Thanks for joining. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 4. In this episode, I interview Professors Sheila McCrane and Jennifer Fugate on their book called Movement Matters, which is a book about embodied cognition. We will get further into what we mean by embodied cognition in the interview. The most important thing to just understand about it is that it is a model of understanding, learning, and how we think and our cognition in a way that integrates the mind and body as one system, one completely intertwined, integrated system. And this is different than something you'll hear the professors talk about, which is called Cartesian dualism. It's named after Rene Descartes. Dualism is the idea that the mind and body are separate things, that one does not necessarily have to do with the other. The problem with dualism is that, first of all, as we will explore further in the interview, it does not align with our modern understanding of how learning actually happens. The other issue with it is that that philosophy has informed a lot of how we teach and the different types of ways we have created institutions for learning that do not apply to how humans actually learn. And a big one of those would be school, where students sit in rows in chairs and they listen to somebody talking. That is not how we learn. It can be a modality and something that complements, but when we actually go into the deeper layers of learning what it is and how it happens, we see that it doesn't come from these graphical representations, so these words that enter the brain as though nothing else needs to get involved. And then the brain just takes that, computes it, and is able to create some sort of output. It doesn't work that way. And our biggest indicator of that is the unbelievable amount of learning that happens before we ever learn to speak. 
and how much learning happens, for example, as we learn to walk and we learn to talk, that there is no instruction involved. It's all about feedback, really. It's all about serving stuff out, getting stuff returned, making adjustments. And all of that feedback gets created through movement of the body in one form or another. Even in terms of speaking, there's movement of the mouth and the diaphragm, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one of the things that we just need to understand is that a lot of what we are doing in the world as an attempt to help us learn, and this is also not just in academic settings like school, but in psychotherapy, in personal growth kind of things where we are trying to learn how to change and learn how to make life better, learn how to you know achieve our goals through a way of getting instructions about it. If we don't have a sense of the embodied aspect of it, of how we enact and implement and apply and move in new ways as we get this kind of information, then we miss out on, on learning. We miss out on a very deep way of learning. And that deep learning the, the learning that actually helps us take in new information and increase our degrees of freedom because of new strategies and repertoires we have for navigating life, which I believe that is what learning is for. If we don't get into that deeply embodied sense of learning, we are staying on that surface level and that really only lets us parrot, mimic repeat on a surface level what we've learned. We're really just repeating what we've heard. We're not actually integrating it, personalizing it, embedding it into our lives, and then noticing how much it changes or doesn't change what's going on for us and how to make those adjustments. And so it becomes inauthentic in that sense when we are not taking the time to understand how learning occurs, how deeply embodied and embedded it needs to be within us. And that that requires a sense of movement, movement that is adjusted and sends stuff out and then gets stuff returned. And then we continuously make adjustments with that feedback. I want to bring this up because I think that our misunderstanding of learning, whether we're talking about, you know, personal growth or education kind of settings and psychotherapy, et cetera, our misunderstanding of that has, I think, messed with a lot of people in terms of their mindset about their own ability to learn and change because they're using an outdated model to do that. So they're taking in instructions, but we have not put enough value on the role of the body and how much the movement of what we do matters so much for 
creating these adjustments and really embedding it and and making these sensory motor types of associations that then help us enact what we've learned, enact the new information in a way that helps us adjust and get better at what we want to achieve. And so there are two aspects of this embodied approach that I think are important for us to think about when it comes to our own learning. And again, this is learning, remember, is not just this academic thing. Learning is also about when you are within a family or a relationship. Learning is how do you adjust and evolve and adapt and flex according to constantly changing circumstances and challenges. How do you become more flexible and resilient within that? That to me is learning. So I think it's important for us to understand this idea of embodied cognition for all aspects of our life. We are learning systems. That's kind of what we are. And that's the beauty of humans is that while we have some programming that is put into you know, our DNA or genetics, a massive amount of what we do within our lives has to do with learning. It has to do with, in a sense, these software updates, these ways that we can get information from the outside world, integrate it, implement it, and then move in new ways to try and have new ways of responding to life and adapting to life. And so two elements that come up for me with this embodied approach are rhythms and roles. So rhythms, when we get more in tune with the fact that our body is a part of our learning, that movement is a part of it, that our visceral sensations, our internal environment are all a part of learning and need to be acknowledged and recognized and honored. I think that this would help us inform more of our approaches as to how to do this, how to do it better. I think each of us have different rhythms for learning where we ingest information to a certain degree, we digest it, we integrate it, and then we personalize it in a sense, we enact it with others or with objects. And then that feeds into how we continuously monitor and adjust adjust the next move that we make to get better and better at manipulating and navigating whatever this situation is, this skill, this interaction, this environment, whatever it is. But we have different sensitivities when it comes to this. And so sensitivities to me come into play when we're talking about rhythms and roles and learning. And so just for example, for me, I feel a lot of things. I feel things that I see. I feel things that I hear on a very deep visceral level. And this came out in a very striking way for me many years ago when I went to a Cirque du Soleil. 
And I remember seeing one of the trapezists fall like intentionally and be caught by the other trapezist. And I remember that my entire body was taken over by the feeling of falling. And it was very striking in that moment. I realized that I had always had that experience, but it was much more explicitly conscious in that moment. And I noticed from that point on that that was how I experienced the world. When I see things, when I see someone get hurt or an animal in pain, I have electric pins and needles in the area where they're getting hurt or seeing just different visual stimulus, a bird flying or, you know, different things in nature. I actually feel something um, all over or sometimes localized in a different area and sound as well. Sound hits me on this like vibrational level where it's very visceral to me. And so because of that, I have a need for rhythms that honor that. And I remember in school having challenges, especially when I was very young, because that was just a part of my sensitivity. And it's a part of my gift in terms of learning because I embody and I feel things so deeply. That is what helps me lock it in. It gets very anchored inside in like a sensory motor way that then helps me enact it. And I am able to feel what I'm learning in a sense. But even though that's a a powerful way for me to learn individually, it also means that I get overstimulated and overwhelmed fairly easily. And now that I'm older, I have my own ways of regulating that and finding ways to curate my routines and my lifestyle to, to help me with that. But when we're young, and I'm sure many of you will resonate with this idea of sensitivity, that when we're young, we don't have that autonomy and we don't have the awareness that that's what's happening. So I had, you know, my kindergarten teacher had to talk to my parents (laughs) about my behavior issues in kindergarten. Um, But I was lucky enough that uh, I think it was especially second grade. I remember there was first grade, Mrs. Olson and second grade, Mrs. Franklin. They had some sort of sensitivity as well to my sensitivity. I remember that they allowed me to have time by myself where I got to withdraw from the other students and just read or play or do something quiet. And because they honored that and they saw that that was just part of my own rhythms, it allowed me to flourish in those classrooms. And I was lucky enough to have other teachers later on do the same thing. But the The tricky part of that is that we all have different kinds of sensitivities that I think would help us create rhythms if we paid attention to feelings of that kind of overstimulation and then needing to withdraw possibly and integrate, which I do think is a part of almost all humans learning. We just have different rhythms and rates of how we need to do it. If we don't honor that and if we don't acknowledge that this exists and that the body and the sensations I was feeling in my body, for example, as I was learning, by not honoring that, I started to think something was wrong with me. And I had that for a pretty long part of my identity. It still is there sometimes, to be honest. And I think that that is occurring for a lot of people where there are different sensitivities they have two different kinds of stimulus, but because 
we have such a misunderstanding of the role of the body and the visceral sensations and that internal environment within, for example, learning environments. I think a lot of people can end up thinking something is wrong with them when actually it's just that the structures and systems we're a part of are so outdated and so not acknowledging how humans actually learn and behave and thrive that we think something's wrong when actually it's the system. It's how it's built. It's how it's structured and how it is trying to have everybody be within the same rhythms, the same routines and the same roles. So that that's going to be part of my next point. I want to also just bring up that family systems do this as well, that every member of a family has different rhythms. They all have different sensitivities and ways of moving through those sensitivities. And that is also a part of learning. Learning is occurring within family systems and how we adjust to each member and the ongoing, continuous challenges and opportunities that arise as each member goes out into the world, comes back, right? There's a huge amount of complexity there and a huge amount of learning required. And every member has their own rhythms. But sometimes families are also trying to have everybody be a part of the same rhythm. And I think that also needs to be acknowledged and honored as well. And I'm going to bring in social media in terms of that as well, that I think that social media is disrupting some of these rhythms too, because I think that Sometimes we may need to withdraw, but if, you know, if you're very dependent on social media as a way of earning advertising dollars or this or that, I think that that can also get disruptive. So our sensitivities are experience dependent and also genetic. And there's lots of different factors that go into our sensitivities. So those play a role in our rhythms and they also play a role in our roles, our role within the family, our role within a classroom, within society. The the sensitivities that we have that are played out within the body, within the visceral sensations, how we pick up sensory information how it gets integrated, that all plays into the role that we have as well within relationships and families and and classrooms because the sensitivities we have are what draw our attention to different things. And so each person is going to notice different things and in a different way. And that noticing, how we notice things, what we notice, I think is a very big part of our specializations of how we specialize our function. So if there's somebody who is very attuned to certain kinds of affective emotional states of others, for example, and is able to integrate that and make sense of it, for example, for themselves, versus someone who may pay a lot of attention, have a lot of sensitivity to the geometry of things or the shape or the textures or et cetera, et cetera. There's all these different sensitivities that each of us have that as we also honor that and how incredibly unique and individual they are, they help us get into a sense of our role, our role in society, our role in a family, 
So for me, part of my role is my ability to bring a different kind of understanding to things because of my sensitivities and how I integrate them, how I embody them, how I viscerally sense them, and then how I implement them in my own life and really watch them play out and do a lot of trial and error with a lot of mistakes (laughs) and then try to continuously make adjustments. That is how I learn. And then because of that deep sense of learning, I'm able to extend it out to others and in a sense, offload whatever I've learned into a book, into a podcast, etc. So those are actually elements of a model that we'll talk about in the interview as well, in terms of the embodied cognition. I wanted to just bring up this section of really understanding how important it is for us to know that our body, our internal environment, how we move, those are all parts of learning. And learning is something we all do, especially as humans, all creatures do it to a certain extent, but we are doing it to a very complex and sophisticated degree in all of our environments. And the more we can honor our own rhythms and know that the rhythms that we have may not always get honored in a lot of the places where we work or we learn and that sometimes because of that and that misunderstanding of how humans learn and optimize themselves, there might be a lot of people out there and kids, I think, especially right now, who think something might be really wrong with them. But in fact, it's that the setting that they're a part of, the way we've structured this is not conducive and not aligned at all with the modern science with how we really are truly starting to understand how connected the mind and body are and how we move is so critically important in terms of how we learn and how we understand the world. So being sedentary, being stationary within any kind of environment is generally going to have some negative consequences when it comes to how a person is adapting and thriving in a sense. So it was an honor to speak to these professors. They are proposing a lot of changes to how we teach and how we learn. And I really admire them for that because I think that it's hard to go against what has is so established now. And I was really excited to speak with them and have a lot of my own experiences and my own understandings from the neuroscience realm, as well as the, you know, psychoanalytic and therapeutic realm, all of that was very validated in this conversation with them about learning. So it was a great conversation. We touch on a lot of points. It's pretty long and this intro is pretty long. So this is a very long episode, but I appreciate all of you tuning into this and I hope that you find some elements of this helpful. And remember again that although some a lot of what we're talking about is for the education realm, all of this applies to so many elements of our life. And we are constantly learning. That that is what we do. So thank you for joining me.
I kind of just want to jump right in and say hello to you guys and capture, I think, the excitement that I, I have definitely for chatting with both of you. I think we speak the same language in many ways. And your book is just absolutely fascinating and so aligned with everything that I've been exploring and what really just seems to emerge over and over again, which is that our how we move matters. Yes. <laughs> which is literally the title of your book. <laughs> this is why we why we chose that. I always was I, I was kind of impressed with the double entendre too, like movement matters. Ooh. And movement matters. <laughs> and I was awesome. like, oh that's kind of snappy. So that's how we said <laughs> I love it. And it's so there's so much depth to it because in your book you're focusing a bit more on and we'll get into it, but what you're, you know, there's definitely a lot of the educational component. But for me, more on the clinical side and even the high performance and the, the social emotional attachment based stuff, movement matters. And so much of what is going on inside of us, our thoughts, all of it, the way I kind of like to put it is that everything that's internal becomes a mechanical output of some sort. And so the more we really understand that, I feel like we have an ability to integrate it and teach it. And yeah, it's just such a beautiful realm to explore. And it also makes it more accessible because when we're talking about MRI and neuroscience stuff, people can't know when their anterior cingulate is firing, but they can know what their hands and digits are doing. That's true. That's true. Right. So anyway... Well, well, let's jump in uh, first with, I'd love to hear a bit more about both of your backgrounds, how you got into this field of research. Okay. Sure, Sheila, you want to start? Yeah, so um, I'm a cognitive psychologist, cognitive scientist, and a professor, and I direct the special education program at UMass Dartmouth. I started as a classroom teacher and realized soon that I needed to get a special ed certification. And then I realized that the special ed kids couldn't read and I got a reading specialist certification. And then I realized that the social, emotional, cognitive stuff was missing. <laughs> and I became a school psychologist. And then I decided that I would just keep going because learning fascinates me. So I've been dedicated to, well, I've taught learning theory for over 20 years now. And, you know, there's been a lot of iterations and you know, it's a slow moving machine, but it's still based very much in the head. How we teach and how we expect kids to learn is really based there. And so uh, in the 1990s, I started examining sort of more philosophical phenomenology and Merleau-Ponty's work in terms of, you know, mind-body connection and the rejection of Cartesian dualism. Uh, I became fascinated with that. And, and I wrote about it, Jennifer will tell you, in the early 2000s, rejecting sort of this grand narrative of Western psychology. I, I called it science envy. And <laughs> it was uh, interesting because it really didn't get much traction at that time. I knew intuitively, you know, and I, I'm sure that most good teachers know intuitively that hands-on learning, you know, all the way back to Montessori that it works. That's how we function in our environment. But we still continue to treat kids as, you know, blank slates or brains in the vat. And then, you know, just by kismet, I, I uh, heard about Jennifer's work. She had been at UMass in the psychology department, and I just popped in and I said, I, I hear you're doing interesting stuff, you know, and 
I was talking about active learning, hands-on learning and learning theory and how I'm really having dilemmas. And, you know, I know that intuitively this is working. And she says, oh, oh, okay. And she can tell you, you know, <laughs> she's doing the same sort of thing. And then, you know, so we've been working now five or six years and it's really evolved to the point where I think we're trying really to translate the latest neuroscience evidence of this stuff that we all know is true mm-hmm. and showing how it can be applied to the classroom. So that's me. Can you imagine if all teachers had those insights and then got to have the opportunity to do that, what you were doing, which was you understood that there were other components to learning. You added the social emotional, you added, you know, the reading, like there's just, there's so many layers. Wow. I think it would be absolutely transformative. The more. I think that's a good word because I think that what Jennifer and I are really trying to do is to transform pedagogy that teachers know this, but, and intuitively they know it, but they need to be validated that this really works and we have science to back it up. And that's, what's going to be the game changer, I think. Yes. Fantastic. As I say, and just getting teachers invested too, which I think is, you know, is so important to learning when teachers are invested in what they're teaching and understand the science behind it. They're much more likely to engage with um, the curriculum to engage with that type of pedagogy And that's just going to translate into better student performance as well. So I think part of our goal, and I hope we're doing it successfully, is to really make applicable principles for the teacher so that they understand and, you know, don't have to spend a lot of time on the science, but still can say these are evidence-based practices and here's what I can do. Some of them are very low stakes in the classroom and start to see the progress really quickly, which is just going to motivate them to continue and engage in this type of pedagogy. This also it validates the teachers and also gives that support to the higher level administrative people, I think, too, to create a bigger culture of this. So love it. So yeah, I'd love, we're just nerding out right now. So right, right. I feel like we're going to go on lots of tangents. But um, yeah, I'd love to hear about your background, how you got into this. Yeah, sure. So I'm a social cognitive psychologist. I was trained actually in comparative cognition. Um, my dissertation was on non-human primates, but I've always been interested in the evolution of the brain and how language and the acquisition of language has transformed cognition. So during uh, grad school, I had the pleasure of working with Larry Barcelo, who's the founder of Embodied Cognition, or I should say one of the founders, wow. and taking his class and ultimately ending up being a TA for his class. It was such a mind-blowing experience, no pun yeah. intended, <laughs> that he really just, you know, I had been taught cognition as most of us are, the symbolic representation of thought and information. And then hearing him and his, um, you know, teaching it from an embodied perspective, I said, this just makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. And I was stewing on that for a long time and incorporating it into um, what eventually became relatively long career on emotion research. So I'm actually an emotions researcher and did my postdoc on that. And when I was at UMass, primarily built my career on emotion perception and regulation. But I was always thinking about the role of language and embodied cognition as it affected emotion regulation and perception. And then Sheila, as she mentioned, one day knocked on my door and said, hey, I'm Sheila and I hear you do stuff with emotion and learning. And I said, yeah, sure. And we started chatting. And like she said, it was really kismet because at one point she said, you know, this is this knowledge about hands-on learning. And I said, well, in psychology, we call that embodied cognition. And (laughs) And it was like, 
oh my God, there's wow. a way for this. We're speaking the same language with just, we didn't have the same wow. terminology. Yeah. Yes. Hence the kind of collaboration is born. That is, that's incredible because that also highlights how, and I feel like this is kind of where my work has come in of how many people intuitively know all these things, but because they're not sharing the same terminology and there's this dissection of disciplines, you know, at the university levels where a lot of it starts, like that we're all, we're, some of us are really speaking the same language underneath yes. it, but we don't yeah. join together and create that collective intelligent kind of network. So that's and really cool was, that you said that because at the Association for Psychological Sciences that Jennifer and I were just down in Chicago, we presented on the book. And one of the things we talked about was the silos of the disciplines that people are doing stuff, even our, our authors and our contributors are all in their own little silo and nobody's talking to each other. So that is, I think that's why MIT was so excited because this is the first time that we're taking an umbrella theory and applying it across the content areas. It's, it's in the baby step stages yeah. and small community. But I think that I think that it's important. And I think, like you said, transformative. And I, I love the word transform too, because it beyond form. So we have these forms and these structures and we want to move beyond that so that it's more emergent and it doesn't have these defined sections, I guess, to, to learning. So that really tracks with the kind of embodied cognition model, right? Getting away from this idea of forms and essences and this absolute knowledge and representation. So that's actually a really great metaphor. funny because as you were saying too with the idea of movement matters there's so many plays on words but matter is that defined structure already you know and so movement can uh, help go beyond that and then create new forms again right so it's like playing with matter. I love it (laughs) that's really cool you know we were reluctant to use the name because a lot of people thought it was about athleticism and about you know that kind of thing and MIT got it they just got it right away you know a lot of people like uh we had talked to a couple of other publishers and they kind of didn't really know where we fit and especially since it was cross-disciplined so that doesn't surprise me at all with MIT just being such a home of systems thinking yeah Mm -hmm. you know and so I think it's it's great for for my audience to just hear this as well that Places like MIT, where we can all recognize how much innovation, what a leader in the world they are of extremely high level, innovative kind of thinking. They're the ones that got this. So so indebted to our publisher and everybody there who helped us kind of even restructure um, how we were originally thinking about presenting the information. So they did an incredible job. So I guess just, uh, I don't know who wants to take the lead on this, just a, a, a brief explanation. We kind of are already explaining it, but embodied cognition for the people who don't even know what that term means. So, you know, there's always been this idea that cognition is represented solely in the brain 
that we work on information in a very amodal type way so that things are symbolic. Language could be an example of that. But it's really about the representation of chunks of information and those chunks of information, if you will, don't represent any of the sensory, motor, and perceptual information that is used to encounter them initially. So um, you mentioned this before, Stephanie, this idea that you, there's this input system and then there's a brain that processes it, right? And then it has to kind of redirect it out through the motor system. And through that, there's some translational process. That's the traditional computation, the Cartesian dualism of separation of mind and body. And then in body cognition really flips that on its head and says, well, we capture information and we learn and our brain in a very predictive way makes inferences about our environment, about the affordances our environment give. Our sensory and motor systems capture that information and either directly, depending on the theory of the body cognition, or indirectly use that information as the content of our thoughts. So people, you know, differ on the kind of extent of embodied cognition, but the general idea is that the mind and body are not separated, that we learn through our environment, we learn through our senses, our perception, and that that type of information and the nuances that are afforded in any particular instance gets coded in our brain. And when we're then able to think about that information, we do through a process called simulation, which is actually using the same perceptual action, visual, auditory information to recreate that experience. Mm-hmm. So we used to think about, you know, action and perception as two different entities. It kind of parallels the Cartesian dualism of mind and body separation. But now we really think about action and perception as the same thing. So that when I think about a water bottle or I think about my coffee drink next to me, my brain is actually activating mm-hmm. the same perceptual sensory systems as if I was drinking or holding that cup of coffee or that cup of water. Wow, that's a great explanation. I think that will resonate with a lot of people too. I have so many examples. I'll just bring one of how this resonates with me as well. I worked with this boy who had, he'd been born four months premature. And so he had some issues with, um, kind of spatial, like understanding size and things like that. And even uh, shapes and how they work together. And I remember this one day where he was trying to get a, uh, like a, a Lego thing attached to this other Lego thing, like this trailer. And he kept doing it and he kept doing it and it just wasn't working. And so I remember hearing one of the other people that I was working with saying, um, carefully, do it carefully. But it didn't, that didn't resonate with him. And then in that moment, I realized, well, what do we, what do we mean by carefully? So I said, slowly do it more, hold it, like put it closer, more slowly. And that was when it clicked because it was like describing careful as a concept in a a sense, like what does that mean? But it was this understanding of we need to talk about what we, how we actually move in our environment so that he would understand what I meant by carefully. And that was when he got it. So that was like a a big aha for me of how much we use these words that are, that are these abstractions or these kind of layers out and there, but if we can get them more grained into what, what does that mean? (laughs) Like even these concept of mindfulness or 
uh, regulations. So like there's a, there is a speed, there's like a, a physics to it, like how it actually physically manifests. So, and I love how you're talking about that. The things that we think about, we're creating these activations, these representations in our mind that include all of the components of it. it really informs pedagogy and the art of teaching is pedagogy, right? So when we have special education teachers in my program, when we have regular education teachers, we're still teaching learning theory almost in a behavioristic way. You know, mm. this separation of mind and body, it's still about the kids in rows and columns sitting there and just being recipients of a talking head teacher and this embodied motion that we talked about in terms of learning that it's you know real dance with the kids the teachers gestures and and posture and language and then the students being involved and we've said this a lot we've talked about interactive and all this other kinds of learning but the kid the, the mindset of the teacher who's been trained in a traditional learning theory that, you know, goes back to, you know, the blank slate and the brain in the vat, you're still carrying around this brain and we're trying, and even, you know, as far back as Aristotle talked about the, the spiritual versus the physical and that the body was an albatross around the neck of the mind preventing infinite possibilities. Mm. We know through millions of years of evolution that we learn through the affordances in our our environment. We adapt to the affordances in our environment, and this is how we learn. And if teachers really understood in our, our textbooks and our learning theory and our cognitive psychology really made a case to support this, then teachers that buy into it, the teachers and the curriculum that would represent it, the teachers would be more comfortable in implementing a movement, beware of their gestures, beware of their movement, uh, being aware of the kids imitating or making the sign of a isosceles triangle, whatever it would take. And just like Jennifer said, it could be very low tech. This is what's exciting about this. It's really a paradigm shift. So, yeah. And I think, again, this was Nathan who said formalisms first. So we're all familiar with the idea, you know, you sit down in the classroom, you're taught um, some piece of information, whether it be a formula in math or, you know, some kind of diagramming a sentence. God forbid, remember that back in English. <laughs> and then if there's time, that was the big if, right? And we know as instructors, there rarely is. Then maybe we can apply it to something and have some real world application. And so this idea really of embodied cognition says, let's start with the real world and let the student derive the formulas or the principles or, principles oh. or later abstraction naturally from the experiences that we do every day. Yep. Mm-hmm. There, there's a couple of things that come up for me. One is just um, like what you were talking about, Sheila, the, the fact, I think a lot of teachers don't know they're inside a paradigm. So I, I'm a big fan of Danella Meadows and she talks about mindset, like shifting that is one of the powerful leverage points to change. 
but actually rising above and even knowing you're in a paradigm is really powerful. So just the idea of that, I think there's a lot of people that don't even know that behaviorism has been an influence or that there is this dualism, but they don't even understand that philosophy in a sense and that they are riding the wave of that. So I think just pointing that out is already powerful that just to people will be like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that's what we were doing that, you know, we were separating this exactly. And that the whole behaviorism idea of, you know, stimulus response, I will give this curriculum and then there's the response without thinking about like those mediating factors. So I think that's, that's already uh, something important for people to hear also, like for me, there's a, a great example of this where I was working in a school and uh, I was the school counselor, but I was bringing a lot of you know mindset and neuroplasticity and that kind of teaching into the classrooms. And I got to observe and there was a, a first grade teacher and she was in front of the class and she was teaching addition and, and subtraction. And the students were in the chairs, like in their, in their rows and I was walking and they were writing on their worksheets and I was walking around and they weren't getting the simplest of equate. It was just two plus two, but they could not comprehend what was ha- like. They were all the answers were all across the board. So I went in and I, um, you know, we, we were friends and collaborating and I gathered some students around me and I brought some little, they had these little pebbles. And so I was showing them that the, the, the squiggle on the page meant something in the world. It wasn't just a squiggle on the page. And that, you know, as I took the two pebbles, which so many of us know intuitively, that's how we usually teach kids to count. But, you know, took those, those objects and put them together. And they finally, they all got it. And they also gathered around. So I think we're going to talk a little bit about these collaborative gestures and things like that. But um, that was when they started to understand it. And so that teacher then had the aha of seeing that, oh, there's another way to do this. Because honestly, for her, it was just that that's all she saw. She only saw a teacher in the front of the classroom, you know, using these worksheets. That was how she was trained. And so she didn't even have the awareness that there could be another way of being more in the mix with the kids and, under, you know, bringing more, yeah, re, what, what it represents in life. Yeah. So we, we call that subitization, meaning that the kids internalize, you know, these basic numbers. And when I try to show my, my students about how we internalize what five and 10 is, we have our fingers, we have, you know, real manipulative, real hands-on representations. And I was thinking about, you know, your actions are really kind of using manipulatives and everything, but how about if that teacher had four kids get up in front of the classroom and add two more kids and then say, okay, what would you do if you wanted to separate you into threes? And, you know, like just really getting the kids involved in movement and, and then just sort of internalizing that notion of, of numbers. And, and Jennifer, you can talk more about finger counting and stuff, which is really important. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I've told this story before, but finger counting is so important for exactly the reason you're saying. It gives something that's tangible, right? That's why we learned to count on our fingers. 
And I tell the story of my son when he was in, I think it was first grade. And his teacher told him, um, he came home and he was all upset because he was counting on his fingers. And his teacher told him that was babyish and that he shouldn't do that. And I, <laughs> I wanted to be writing the book at the time. And I wanted to take that chapter and just throw it at the teacher and say, no, this is actually really good because your finger knows you. This ability to understand your fingers and map your spatial world onto your body predicts not just math scores in first and second grade, but all the way through college algebra. So it's like, keep counting on your fingers. This is really good. So this is an example of where I think some of these neuromyths that Sheila has talked about before come into play. Teachers say, don't do that. That, That's not good. That's babyish. That's not the way we learn. And in fact, our neuroscience actually says that this is a great way to learn. That's such an important anecdote for people to hear as well, that the teacher's they don't necessarily have all those answers of how we learn best. And so it's, there's these things that we do so intuitively, but that get programmed out of us because of these old ways of thinking. So there's these old kind of institutional mindsets that are there that are very prevalent and dominant in schools. So I think that it's just helpful for us to all hear that the ways that children are, are often learning in these, these institutional kind of environments are not necessarily the best way according to what really works and what the science actually says. Yeah. And we're catching up. We're, it's outdated. So we need to, yeah, update this. The problem <laughs> is, just like Jennifer pointed out, these neuromyths that are out there about, you know, brain exercising and the muscle and everything. Is because school districts hire these, you know, kind of actor professional development people that have all the bells and whistles. The teachers mm-hmm. bring lots and lots of cookies and cakes and they sit for three days and listen to this. And, you know, it sounds great, you know, blah, 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 brain exercise, the brain, you know, that kind of thing. But the problem with those professional developments are the research shows that teachers will maybe try one of the gimmicks for a couple of days and then they go right back to how they were taught. So we're perpetuating this traditional model of teaching, you know, talking head, rather than seeing knowledge as we're teaching as a way to help students become detectives and looking for the answer and that kind of thing. So the notion of teaching needs to be flipped on its head. And the teachers really need to understand that education or knowledge really is not a bunch of facts in the head, but really giving them a love of learning continuous lifelong learner, you know, and teaching them where they can get the answers. And for me, that's always been electric for me because once I get an idea and then I want to keep looking, keep looking, and we have to instill that in kids from a very early age. If they see it only as a bunch of unrelated facts, then we're defeating the purpose of education. And until they get a really good teacher that's excited about their content area, sometimes they never get exposure to that love of learning. think that idea of investigation and exploration, we, that's just a, something innate within us. 
because we are constantly looking for more data in a sense to update the algorithms and, you know, for our own problem solving. And so the more variability we get, the more, uh, which would include what I would call like sensory motor variability. So how these digits move, what, what do we smell, what, what right. textures, yeah. and we're so robbed of that in our current society with just the same texture on the screen, the same movements over and over again, but this variability and the cause effect that happens as we create these different, like what I'm doing right now, these unique movements. And I think that is so powerful for the algorithms in our mind. And I think you actually talk about that. Yeah. So one of the things that we speculated on early is the reason why handwriting is so important is because you have all of that individual nuances that you get from Mm. not just the affordances of holding a pencil, but moving in Mm -hmm. each particular way, especially with cursive, which incorporates a much more finer motion movement pattern than even printing, but certainly printing compared to the keyboard. We would argue that the reason then is you have a richer representation of information that later you can draw upon for the simulation. So the richer the initial experience, the richer the ability then to have that information and use it. So I just wanted to go back to one of the points that you made before too, Stephanie, about um, the brain. And I think this idea that we talked about embodied cognition really fits with a more modern view of how the brain works too. We used to think about the the brain as being something to translate what was out in the world, just to represent and decode information. Mm -hmm. And now we know that the brain's really primary function is to predict, to predict its environment, Mm -hmm. to regulate its body. And so when you think about the brain's purpose as to predict the world as opposed to react to it, I think you get this idea that embodied Mm. cognition is a natural extent of that. Mm, That's really powerful. So I want to touch on a couple of things you just said with the the finger movement, the, because what strikes me about that is that you know, when you're moving with the hands and that's creating that bigger representation and like more, more uh, information, I guess you could say that I think that already is a shift for teachers to think about as well in terms of using the hands. And I, so I did some training in reading therapy and that was also, uh, we used a lot of different senses. So we did a lot of this movement and a lot of movement of the face and the tongue and the mouth because, and I think your, your work probably touches on that a lot too, but how, I mean, our first, you know, signals that we send out in the world are these, what I call sophisticated grunting, which is we're, we're pushing air out and we're moving this. And that, that to me is, there's a lot of the social emotional aspect to that as well, that I think could be integrated into the classroom of how we move, like how the tension in the throat changes and the tongue and the air and how it gets pushed out. There's a lot more going on in terms of these signals and frequencies we're creating through these movements that are not just like letters inside the brain. It doesn't really work like that. So those grunts that little babies make, you know, the parent labels them. Oh, you're wet. Oh, you're hungry. Oh, you're tired. Ooh. So we come, become socialized into language. We don't really learn language in a you know, didactic way. Ooh. But back to the point that you were talking about reading and writing. So in 1930, the, this married couple, the Fernalds, came up with this acronym, Visual, Auditory, Kinesthetic, and Tactile. And that was way ahead of the time. 
But that's kind of what we're talking about. All of these senses working together to create the learning event. And back to Jennifer's point about handwriting. Uh, well, the research tells us that writing by hand, even college students taking notes by hand, really registers in the language comprehension part of the brain rather than keyboarding. So there's been you know, study after study that say that if you take your notes by hand, you're more likely to encode and, and internalize oh. it rather than just mindlessly typing. And you can type all day long and not really pay attention to what you're you know, doing. So oh. just like we're talking about, it's very, very revolutionary, but some of the cutting edge uh, researchers are really making headway with it. And that resonates too, just in terms of how much energy and how much um, of our behavior right now is. So I, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of social media and how much we are just typing stuff and putting stuff out there. The idea of even putting stuff on paper and writing it, there's a, you're slowing it down a little bit more too. And I almost wonder if some deeper connections between what you're actually saying, how it feels to you as you do it, yeah. could be made that isn't, isn't existing on social media as people type as fast as they can to reply to that thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So the, I, yeah, there's like a social emotional. That's why the delete button is going to be helpful in the future. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right though. I have just two points on that. So the first is that you know, people have criticized, well, when you're forced to write by hand, of course you're encoding it more deeply, not necessarily because of the muscle movement, but because of the limitation you can't simply write as fast as people speak, where you can, mm. in theory, at least if you're a good typer, type as fast. So when people have criticized this, said when typing, they're just doing it verbatim, whereas writing, you're already doing something more summative. But I mm. think this goes beyond this. I think it does go with the representation of the motor skills involved. And I think it's um, actually enforced then by the limitations of the simple speed. Your brain is actually saying what is important. So it's mm. doing this summative process because it can't simply just oh. dictate a person's speech, yeah. right? So I think that's I a love really that. important point. Yeah. yeah. So it's actually um, encouraging, in a sense, uh, like a, a condensing to what is most I, yes. salient and relevant and important. I, I love that. I'm a big journaler. So, oh. and there's there's something about journaling that it it regulates. It always it's it it's does. my one of my mechanisms for self regulation is yeah. journaling, and I. Oh, there's just so we could go on for hours because I mean, to me also, there's uh, a lot of what I talk about in self-regulation and in the kind of the neuropsychology clinical stuff is how important it is to link what what I've heard called the subsymbolic to the symbolic realms, the visceral into that verbal kind of thing. And so, first of all, I see a lot in in the brain maps that I've I've done over the years. Um, there can be a lot of asymmetry in terms of these frequencies that are happening between the right and the left hemisphere. That's yeah. one of the biggest indicators of something eventually having some symptoms of some sort yeah. um, when there's like lower energy uh, in a sense, like lower, slower kind of frequencies in the left versus right, which I think is very representational of this idea of how important it is for us to have some way to communicate what's going on for us. Otherwise, it there's like alexithymia is kind of one of the conditions that you know I've looked at a lot, and this idea of that some people are some of the anxiety that can be felt is this what you would call undifferentiated arousal. It's just 
something's going on, but it's under what? I just feel bad, but there's not a nuance of, is that like hyper? That's like, are exactly you? exactly what I study, Stephanie. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So what you're describing is called emotional granularity, which is the ability to detect fine grain differences within your emotional state. So instead of just saying, there you go. I was like, emotional granularity. I have to ask her about that. That's absolutely what it is. And it's so so important, resonates on so many levels with what you're saying, because that's actually part of the basis of CBT when you talk about clinical um, implications, right? So the idea is if you learn what you're feeling, or you learn to label your actions, it gives you afforded directions. I always say emotion words or other words in general, and this goes back to those who suffer from alexithymia, is that they give you afforded direction. If you know that you feel irritated versus frustrated, that says I can do something different as opposed to just feeling like, I feel like crap, which gives you no direction then in how to regulate your emotions. So I love that you brought that up because that's actually... You know, that, that's what I said. I started as a, well, didn't start, but I've been a motion researcher for a long time. But here's where this idea of granularity and embodiment and how words affect the embodiment yeah. of these experiences kind of finally oh, come together for me. Yes. Wow. And I love that. Afforded action. So that was, you know, so I'm writing a book as well. And um, I, a big part of the the last chapter was uh, regulatory flexibility, which is to have a larger repertoire of strategies, but you also have to have the ability to so con- be sensitive to context, which requires exactly that to know that what what is it that I'm feeling, and is it is it more of a down regulated is upright. So that's I think that's really important, and I also I just want to I love highlighting this because I think that a lot of the people in my audience as well and people in the world right now are there's a, there's a lot of mental health issues. There's a lot of struggle with this kind of, I think for a lot of people, it would be this undifferentiated arousal where something just feels wrong or off, but they're not putting their finger, (laughs) their finger on it. So I think this is a really, really important topic to bring up for all audiences and educators included. I think what it results to is just having a richer conceptual knowledge or embodied experiences of then what to what to attribute that feeling. And if you don't have that representation or that knowledge or that really rich context, like maybe this is because I'm, I'm feeling this way because of this or because of this. And those are derived from, derived from experiences. If you don't have that, it's so easy then to look at somebody else. And that could be through social media to go to your yeah. um, and then say, oh, well, then I'm like this person. And that's where these, then we get this, you know, sometimes negative role models because people don't know what to do with yeah. this undifferentiated arousal. And so they look, we're natural pattern seekers and we're natural try to explain theirs of our own behavior. They say, well, what can I do with it? Or what have I seen other people do with it? And so if their only examples are the negative ones that we see in the news, or even on the flip side, the really kind of doctored images that you see at social media, where everybody's life looks great, there's a very warped sense of this richness of real life experiences that people can draw upon.
wanted to talk to the teachers or the educators in the audience that I worked in a hospital for seriously emotionally disturbed kids as an intern for a year. And we did cognitive behavioral therapy. And I tried to help the special education teachers understand what therapy does for kids. You know, I tell them, you know, when you get upset and your boyfriend didn't pick up the laundry or the dry cleaning and, you know, you can, whatever it is that it's a trigger that upsets you, you can compartmentalize that and say, this is the behavior that blah, blah, blah. Kids don't have that mechanism. Kids benefit by having us to do therapy to say, to label the behavior that upsets them. They don't have that ability to really like compartmentalize, like, why am I angry? Because we had so many kids that were just angry as hell, didn't know why, acted out, didn't know why. So after a lot of effort uh, and talking to them and trying to do therapy with having them try to label, like you said, the trigger, and then to help them to develop strategies for how to compensate or mitigate the, those triggers. So, you know, we're all talking the same language, but I think mm-hmm. it's really important to let the educators in the audience know that this is what we do with children because it's an uphill battle really to help them understand that when we're older and we have more strategies and compensatory strategies, we can compartmentalize what makes us angry. We really yes. And yes. don't have that mechanism. Which is so tied into pattern recognition as well. And yeah. it makes me think of another story that, so at that same school where I was the counselor, I worked with this boy who was getting kicked out because he was just kicking kids and pushing kids. And we ended up doing, it took multiple sessions to get there, but um, we, so this is really this embodied approach where I asked him, so he said, I just feel so angry. And so I got him to, reflect on where, where do you feel this anger? But he couldn't get there right away because he didn't know how to make that connection. So I actually, in those sessions, would, would literally think of something that was upsetting me. And then I would yeah. show him, I'm like, okay, now I'm, oh, I feel it. I can feel clenching right here. And I would really like in that granular way, explain where exactly I felt it. Like, oh, it's pinpricks in my fingers. And after I did that a few times, he had a moment where he's like, oh, oh, I, it feels hot. And then he looked down and he saw his hand clenching. Yeah. He said, oh, and he said, I have a, that's my indicator that I'm angry. And then later, actually, after that session, he came to me at the end of the day and he said, Miss Stephanie, the girl that normally really bothers me, uh, she started to do the thing that bothers me, but I saw my hand clench. And so I knew that I was in that mode. And I said to her, I want to use more of my prefrontal cortex. So I will talk about this later. (laughs) He turned away. But it it just, that so aligns with everything you guys are talking about in terms of the the granularity he had, the the actual representation of all of these senses and the motor component that was existing in the anger. Then, so I'm using your language now, I'm learning, um, gave him some afforded action. Like he was able, because he had now these much stronger, granular, and the actual, you know, so many senses and um, exactly that he now knew. So I just, you know, with everything going on in the world and there's so much stress and anxiety Mm -hmm. and uncertainty, I just think it's so, the more that 
any of us, whether we're therapists or educators, can really get this, this layer of it, I think will help people so much. Because if kids are feeling really uncertain or stressed or you know, aroused in these ways, it's going to be hard for them to learn. Yeah. So that regulation piece is, that is, I think, is an important pillar that we really need to integrate into the classrooms as soon as possible. Like to the point of this should be an emergency declaration. <laughs> it should be. I mean, so much social emotional learning in the school, but so much of it suffers just from the same, you know, bells and whistles that Sheila has talked about. I mean, there are some, there are some good, you know, evidence-based practices But if you think about the way that we learn emotions, we learn emotions because somebody labels what we're doing, just like you were talking about with the child or just what you're talking about, even with your fist clenching. You know, somebody says, oh, you're making that face and you're clenching your fist. You must be angry. And then it's that word then that dictates the experience of emotion. And, And again, coming from a more modern view of neuroscience We're not saying then that there's an anger circuit in the brain that just fires and you have no control over it. I mean, maybe at best you can recognize it as the student did. But what we're saying is that emotions are created from this affective experience. And then through our learning, we can attribute it to X, Y, or Z category, you know, anger Mm -hmm. or frustration. And what that does is give us so much more power of our emotion uh, over our emotions than thinking about us as just reacting to these circuits that are going off. And I think that's super powerful, not just for a child in controlling and regulating, but for adults too. You don't have to be a victim of your emotions. You control, you create your emotions through your experience. What also is coming up for me as you say that is that if we have these, you know, these feelings and then the people around us are using specific words, if we're not around people who have enough differentiated and nuanced language, then we are going to keep categorizing something as anger when actually it's maybe just mild irritation or actually (laughs) uncomfortable or nervous. So, but we don't have enough nuance so that we label it that, which also then makes it so that so we're if we're talking in this predictive way as well that then that must be that person must be making me angry when actually they're just kind of making you hesitant or you know so I feel like um surrounding ourselves and this is where the teachers and educators is so important for them to nuance their language which means they need to get more in touch with all of this because as they do that now the language gets more sophisticated. So that's for all of us to benefit from. And yeah. it makes me think of social media as well. If you're following the same people who keep using the same words over and over again to describe their experience, then you're just this big wall of just, it, it all fits into that. Right. And so now I'm not going to explore that. Actually, I might be feeling a sense of loss or grief right now. It's not actually, I need to blame some or whatever that is. So right. yeah. Really That's fun. what I'm talking about. There with the richness of conceptual knowledge. I think it's so limited when people are following social media because they are, they're in those echo chambers and they're hearing the same thing over and over. And we know, again, from experience, the best way to combat even stereotypes and just have more 
just a more appreciation of the world and its diversity is to interact with different people, get different viewpoints. And so when you're in the echo chambers, you know, whether they be about emotions or anything else, you're not really increasing that conceptual richness that you get through experiences with diverse people. Mm -hmm. So did you want to say something, Sheila? Uh, Well, uh, it's a little premature, uh, but Jennifer and I are looking at social media and, you know, problems with bullying and narcissism and those types Mm. of things that are kind of perpetuated through young adolescent behavior. So we're still in the baby stages of talking about it, but it's really a, a whole different avenue to explore. But yeah, I agree with you guys. I think that the social media is something that's a whole new realm for us to look at. Sheila, do you want to say something about 4E cognition and extended cognition and our phones? Yeah, um, well, (laughs) so uh, Sean Gallagher was talking about embodied cognition and he he described it as 4Es so that he talked about it being embodied, embedded in a situation, enacted, that we're oh. acting on it. And then what am I leaving out? Uh, extended. So I think Jennifer, uh, Jennifer is talking about the fact that an extended mind or an extended you know, cognitive model would be sort of offloading uh, our thinking to our phone, our computer. Oh. Uh, one of the examples that Merleau-Ponty and then Gallagher repeated was that uh, the blind man and the stick. And he talked about, like, where's perception? Is the perception in his brain? Is it in his hand? Is it in the handle of the walking stick? Is it in the tip touching the sidewalk? Jennifer has an example. Do you want to tell us about the octopus teacher? Oh, yeah. So if you're familiar with this wonderful documentary that came out almost two years ago. I loved it. Yes. Right? So how is it that an animal who's as intelligent as an octopus without any real cognitive centralized system is so intelligent? Well, it does it through its body. And there's another great example that um, I was just looking at. The idea that our depth perception. So we don't experience depth unless we move our heads. Because our eyes are stationary. And so we only attribute depth and understand depth and the reality of the world when we move through it. And so think about that as this idea of affordances and evolution of certain organisms and their environment. And it's such an amazing, two very different, but um, equally amazing examples of how movement really does matter. (laughs) (laughs) So this idea of the extended mind, um, it's still controversial, but like I I use the example talking with Jennifer, you know, my husband asked me, you know, what is so-and-so's phone number? I said, phone number? I don't remember phone numbers anymore. It's in my phone. Let me look it up on my phone. So Andy Clark talks about, and and Chalmers uh, talk about the fact that we have offloaded a lot of cognitive work to our extended uh, tools in our environment. So Mm. it's like the adaptation and affordance that we move towards using tools and our, you know, just like the manipulatives for children, this is sort of a more sophisticated tool that we're offloading Mm. with cognitive load. Yes. Wow. And so look at how much we will kind of spew out also, uh, (laughs) you know, from our early experiences and unresolved pain and all that, how much that's, wow, let's just put it out there. (laughs) And then I don't internally process it either because it's, it's put out there. The, the, I love that word enactment. Like that makes me think of uh, the neuropsychoanalytic domain 
I love that. It was, what was it? It was embedded, embodied, embodied, embedded, enacted, and extended. Yeah. Wow. Because to me, the, the, the neuropsychoanalytic approach is this idea that there's so much that is embedded in a sense too, from our early experiences. And then as we are getting into the, our adult relationships, just like with what you're saying too, Jennifer, with the predictive algorithms, we are, we often enact, you know, what we experienced when we were young and we're, we're creating these extensions of, let's say this person represents kind of like an authority figure to me, or there's a power dynamic that oh, feels wow. similar, right? So now I'm going to enact my similar fawning kind of behavior or hostility or self-defensiveness in this situation because it extends into these other frameworks that have the same flavor. So that's a very yeah. good take on it. And we'll take that under advisement. I think it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> we're approaching the hour. I could, I would, I mean, I feel like we should have another episode because um, <laughs> I could keep going. I haven't even, you know, we haven't even talked too much about the book, but I feel like we got a lot of the, the passion and excitement and importance of it. I think we captured it a lot in what we're talking about. Um, I do want to leave it open for you guys. If there's anything else you want to bring up that you want to share before the we... The one thing that we want to share with the audience is that Jennifer and I came up with a model to conduct this research. And we call it the trans, Translational uh, Learning Sciences Research Model. And it's based on the NIH model of uh, translating science research. And it's sort of the medical, biomedical model Ooh. where uh, they're trying to speed up the lab bench to the patient, trying to get the research out there in a very quick way. Ooh. One example is how quickly we were able to turn around the vaccine for COVID. It was like a model that usually would take ten, five to 10 years. And so we adapted that translational model to our purposes for embodied cognition to use this, this translational model to interpret the latest neuroscience for embodied learning for the classroom. Mm. And uh, we developed the principles and application. Jennifer, you can talk more about the principles. Yeah, so I mean, the model is very general, but as um, Sheila said, this is unique for the social sciences and education. We don't really have a model of translational science. So building on the biomedical model, we um, outlined this, this model. It's in our book and also in a 2021 Frontiers paper. But in terms of then applying it to um, emotion, um, to embodied learning, what we really wanted to do was, was four things. So the first one is to promote the multidirectional and multidisciplinary integration of basic embodied research to debunk current trends in teaching and learning that aren't evidenced by, by, by science. So our book does that quite a bit, as well as all of the individual work, I think, of the authors featured within. Our second aim is to compile the embodied research to be translated and make those connections to improve pedagogy. I think that's really where we're at and really the, the emphasis of the book and the, I think, value of the book is in part in each of the chapters, but again, in this kind of translational model that transcends any individual discipline or silo, okay. as you mentioned, but what are the learning principles? So in the conclusion of the book, um, you know, we really spent quite a bit of time summarizing from various disciplines and then extracting 
one principle that could be used that really transcends different disciplines. So we're making progress on that and we're we're building a a resource, hopefully kind of a one-stop shop clearinghouse through some of the, the work that I'm doing here and Sheila's doing. We featured on our website in which we'll actually have vetted classroom examples of embodied learning where the technology is available, who it's aimed for, how to assess it, and what the empirical evidence is to show its efficacy. Step three is really to develop and disseminate resources and tools to help individuals at all levels of expertise. And again, I think the target audience for our book is not just, um, you know, it's not just academics or psychologists or cognitive scientists or even people in academia, but really for the the common teacher, what can can I take from this? And so we hope that it has some wide breath to it. And then finally, we want to focus on the creation of appropriate embodied curriculum and the development of taxonomies, eventually being able to track out outcomes and assess whether program objectives and competency requires are met. So this is really where our efforts are at now. I think a lot of ground on the first three, but now it's really mapping <laughs> to competencies and creating the assessments that follow. Yeah, yeah that's big work. I love the, the third one where you were talking about how it, it, there's many different people that this can apply to. And I really see it also for, although, you know, the focus in the book is, is, has more of the, the for teachers and in the education realm, but I see it for parents, parenting, you know, and even just in, in relationships, like family systems, like how people are embodying, you know, cause it's not just about, learning math, we're, we're talking about how do we have this embodied approach to how we're approaching conversations, how we're using language, because language is, is the thing that is, is being disseminated on social media, within our families, in our romantic relationships with our children. So how do we have a different paradigm about how we're using language to create, uh, create the states that we really desire within ourselves and with others? So. Yeah, Sheila, you want to say something? I think you're right. I, I think there's a lot of applications for this, and that's why we kind of call it an umbrella theory and you know approach. We're really excited about this translational uh, learning sciences research model because we feel that it is something new for for the social sciences and the learning sciences and for teachers. And we're just making some headway. We're really trying our best. Change in schools are very, very slow moving. And until we kind of change the ed site books and the education policymakers at the federal level, it's going to take a while before, you know, sort of the trickle down model goes. You know, we have our work cut out for us. It's going to be a while. I would like to see a change in, within five years, but we'll, we'll have to see if people are going to buy into this or not. I love it ending on that, that point of that, that change is hard. and that it's a long game and that it's, there's, there can be micro progress and it's important for us to recognize that and to not give up on that longer term vision. 
because yeah. it's it is going to be longer term, but it's these little little trickles in and little moments that eventually I think can catch on. So I can keep going. <laughs> we'll we'll kind of uh, been awesome. wrap up and so we'll good. do part we'll do part two later. Um, such a joy. Thank you so much for what you're doing for bringing this for into the us. world. This was just a, such an invigorating, enlightening conversation. So actually, do you, do you have a website up already? We do. It's in development. It is, let me just make sure I get it right, embodiedcognitionandlearning.com. Okay, I'll put that on the website. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I will put a link up for one of the papers that the professors have shared with us to talk about embodied cognition, as well as a link to the book that is published by MIT Press. And as always, you can email me with questions at hello at stephaniefay.com. I am currently in training for doing a a certain level of partner-based facilitation of workshops. And I'm really excited about this frontier. I think that partnership is a really important aspect of what we need to get better at and learn about for us as a society. And so I love the idea of learning about facilitating and teaching and leading with a partner. And I think there is an art to it as well as a science to it. And I'm excited to take that in as training and then implement it into my own life. So I'm excited for that journey. And there will be more details to come uh, starting in October, November, where I have some some changes coming up. So I'm excited to, to share that. And I'm still curious to get a sense of interest from people about any kind of desire for workshops where we are exploring adult-child dynamics, as well as the way our families have played a role in our identities. So I want to get some a sense from all of you whether there is interest in that. And so I will put the link up for a survey on the article attached to this episode, as well as in the newsletter that goes out. If you haven't subscribed yet to get my monthly newsletter, that's at stephaniefay.com. And as always, I really do appreciate five-star ratings and reviews for my podcast. So thanks for joining me and I will catch you in the next episode.